I invite you to turn at this time in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. As a reminder, we are in this section of Luke where Jesus is currently in his Galilean ministry. In chapter 9, verse 50, we will see a transition point as he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, to journey to Jerusalem, to do what he came to, the, to this earth to do. That is to be arrested, be beaten, mocked, and ultimately die on a Roman cross. So Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. What is the chief motivation for Christian obedience? Or to put it another way, the Bible employs the analogy of a pilgrim to describe the Christian in the, this present 
evil age. And so what motivates a pilgrim people to continue to put one step in front of another as we journey on to the new Jerusalem? What is the chief motivation for Christian obedience? This is an important question. It's a question that's been asked throughout the ages. In fact, it was this question that was part of the reason why the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century rejected the Protestant Reformation understanding of justification by faith alone. In the 1540s, the the Roman Church met at what's called the Council of Trent. And this council served as a response to the 16th century Protestant Reformation sometimes referred to as a counter-reformation. And at this council, they were deliberating over many points that the reformers had put forward. One of these points was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And when this topic came up, there was one theologian in particular who stood up and gave a three-hour lecture or presentation on why the church should reject this doctrine as being erroneous and even harmful for the people. And one of his points is that if we accept this doctrine of justification by faith alone, and it's preached and accepted in the churches, it's going to lead to utter lawlessness and licentiousness. Can you imagine a people who believe that they're freely accepted by God, not by their own merits, but by the merits of Christ alone? What's going to motivate them to live virtuously and piously in this present age? Well, this is an objection that has gained a hearing not only in Roman Catholic circles, but in Protestant circles as well, even down to our present day. If you consider this objection, on the surface you can see some plausibility to it. Imagine our own culture, our own day and age, as we live in a very secular Northwest. If we preach, if we teach, if we put forward this this free salvation gospel message, are Christians really going to be motivated to live as, as, uh, as light in the midst of such darkness? To live virtuously in the midst of such godlessness? So who's right? The Reformation? Or Trent? Well, it's this question or this topic that Jesus addresses head on in our narrative this evening. And so, what I'd like us to do is to walk through this narrative with this topic, this question in mind of the motivation for Christian obedience, and see how Jesus himself answers this very important question. So remember the context, the context of where we're at in Luke chapter 7. One of the themes that Luke has been developing for us is the questions, the reactions to Jesus' identity as he's been ministering among the people in the region of Galilee. A couple passages ago, we saw Jesus raise from the dead this young man who was the only son of a widow. And the people in response glorified God 
and declared, a great prophet is among us. God has visited his people. Last time together, we, we saw how John the Baptist, who was in prison at this time, he had questions over Jesus' identity. And he sent his disciples saying, are you the one or should we look for another? And now we come to this narrative before us and we come across this, this certain Pharisee, Pharisee named Simon. And Simon is, is curious but very skeptical of this Jewish teacher who is gaining quite a reputation among the countryside. And so Simon hears that, that Jesus is in town, and so he invites Jesus over to his own home for, for a banquet. He wants to see for himself this controversial yet powerful teacher. So we learn that Jesus enters the home of, of Simon the Pharisee, and Luke tells us that Jesus reclines at table with him. Now this indicates that this was not an ordinary meal. This likely was a banquet or a special meal. Because it was at banquets or special meals that the guests would recline at the table. And this was quite common in that culture. And what this would have looked like is each guest would have a sofa next to the table and they would lie on their side facing the table. And they would eat and converse in that position. And we know that ordinary family meals, individuals sat upright. So this was a banquet. This was a special meal that Simon was putting on for Jesus. And the other invited guests that we are not told about. Well, at banquets and, and special meals, it was also customary to leave the door open. So the door would be open so that uninvited guests, generally people who were on the lower socioeconomic playing field, they could come to the dinner, but they would sit on the outside along the wall and listen in to the, the conversation at the table. And sometimes they would be able to glean from some of the scraps and leftovers after the banquet was finished. And so in verse 37, we hear about one such uninvited guest who walks through this open door. And then this, this uninvited guest is a woman. A woman who has the reputation of being a sinner. A notorious sinner. Now Luke doesn't reveal much, really anything else about the identity of this woman. Uh, commentators speculate about who this woman could have been. Many commentators think that she may have been a, a prostitute. We can't know for sure. But regardless, we do know that she had the reputation of being a notorious sinner. Someone who you did not want to be in the same room of. And this woman, she's heard the reports that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, who has the power to cast out unclean spirits, to raise the dead, to heal the sick. This Jesus is in town. And this woman likely was trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of her many, many sins. And she wants to see this Savior. She wants to express her gratitude to this, this Jesus, her Lord, to serve him. 
We learn that this woman brings with her this flask of, of perfume. And this perfume would have been expensive. It likely would have cost the annual wage of an average day laborer for this, this flask of, of perfume that she brought with her. And as soon as this woman enters the presence of our Lord, she begins weeping profusely. Tears are streaming down her face. And these are tears of joy, tears of gratitude. So she can't hold back. Not joy and gratitude because of her circumstances in life. No doubt her circumstances in life would have been quite dire. She likely led a very broken life. But these tears of joy, these tears of gratitude came from this wonderful gift of forgiveness that she has received from this Savior, this Lord who is in her midst. And notice what she does next. You know, ordinarily, guests, before they would recline at table, they would take off their sandals. And you can imagine the filth of one's feet in that time. This was a dry desert climate. You're walking on dirt paths and roads. Your feet would have been caked with dirt. And so Jesus is, is reclining at table. His, his feet are no, dark, no doubt filthy. And this woman comes and kneels before his feet. And the tears, these tears which are streaming forth, are wetting, Je wetting Jesus' feet. He's, she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears. But then she lets out her hair and dries Jesus' feet with her own hair. But she doesn't stop there. She then starts kissing Jesus' feet and taking this, this expensive perfume and anointing the feet of her Savior with this ointment. Now the verb tenses that, that Luke uses to describe that the wiping, the kissing, the anointing express an ongoing action. That is to say, this didn't take 30 seconds to do. This would have taken some time. And picture this, this event. This woman who has a notorious reputation walks through this, these doors. And she doesn't stay on the wall, right? She doesn't sit down by the wall like, like would have been expected, customary. She comes to the very feet of Jesus and touches him, which would have been very controversial. But then she does something in a manner that no one would have seen. It was customary to wash one's feet, anoint with cheap olive oil, but to do what she did, to wash one's feet with her tears, to wipe one's feet with her hair, to anoint with this expensive perfume, that was unheard of. You couldn't imagine the jaws just dropping around this table. The awkwardness of this event, especially as it would have taken some some time. Well, in verse 39, we don't have to speculate about what Simon, the Pharisee's response, was to this, these events. As Luke tells us, if you look with me at verse 39, we read that uh, Simon was thinking to himself. He said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. 
That is to say, Simon is thinking to himself, aha, I came, I have received what I came for. I invited Jesus into my home to try to get a sense of who he really is. I got my answer. He clearly is not the one, not the Messiah, not the prophet. Because if he was the prophet, he would know who this woman was. And he wouldn't let her close to him. Because he would be defiled. He would be made unclean. But with a touch of irony, notice what Luke says next. He tells us that Jesus proves his divinity as he is able to, to read Simon's thoughts. He knew exactly what, was, what Simon's inner processing was doing. And he says this. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he tells a parable. He says, Simon, imagine a cer certain moneylender who has two debtors. The one debtor owes 500 denarii, which would have been about a year and a half to a year and three quarters worth of wages. And the other debtor has about 50, a debt of 50 denarii. That would have been about a month and a half to two months worth of wages. And let's say that both of them are unable to repay this debt. And so the money lender, out of his own mercy and grace, decides to wipe away both of their debts. Now, Simon, who do you think is going to love the moneylender more? And look with me uh, what Simon says in response. He says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I love how, how Luke includes that small phrase, that word, I suppose. It's as if he begrudgingly gives the answer, the obvious answer, an answer that he's starting to think will prove that he had the wrong response to this woman and to Jesus himself. This answer might, might end up indicting him. So Jesus now goes on to give an explanation of, of this parable. And the manner in which Jesus gives his explanation is again quite striking. He, he turns to this woman. His eyes are upon her. But he's speaking to Simon. It's as if Jesus is wanting to put the spotlight upon this, this woman in order to, to manifest to Simon and the other guests there that they were completely wrong about this woman and about Jesus himself. So he begins to speak to Simon. He says, Simon, I came to your home. It's this banquet that you, that you uh, set up for me. You did not offer me water to, to wash my feet. You did not give me the expected welcome kiss. You did not anoint my feet with olive oil. Cheap olive oil. Olive oil was plentiful in that region. Very inexpensive. Now it should be said that Simon wasn't necessarily required culturally to do these things, but it was deemed as the courteous thing to do if one held a banquet, a special guest. You washed your guests' feet. You anointed their feet with olive oil. And Jesus is saying, Simon, you didn't even do that which is courteous for me. But this woman, this woman came and she went over and beyond what was expected. She didn't use water, she used her tears 
She didn't use a rag, she used her own hair. She didn't use cheap olive oil, but she used expensive perfume. In this parable, Jesus is setting up the moneylender as God and the one with the great debt as this woman, the sinful woman, and the one with the small debt as the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus is making this point that, that this woman served Christ over and beyond what was even culturally expected. But why did she do this? Did she do this because she somehow wanted to make herself worthy of Christ? Did she do this because she felt like she was under some sort of compulsion? No, the way that Luke expresses the service of this woman, it's as if she couldn't help herself. She was starting to taste something of the the forgiveness that she's received from this man. She can't help herself but serve her Lord and Savior. She's overflowing with gratitude and love because of this awesome gift, this gift of forgiveness that she has received. Now, if you look at verse 47 with me, Jesus says says these words. He says, Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. I'd like to spend a few moments on, on that, the last phrase of verse 47, for she loved much. On first reading, it almost sounds as if Jesus is now saying that the ground of her forgiveness is this love and service that she's just, just displayed. As if she's been forgiven because of her love, because of what she's done for her Lord. However, the, the, this word for that's being used here, is being used in an evidentiary sense. That is to say, it's not establishing the cause of something, but it's establishing the result, the evidence of something. So Jesus is saying that her love is fruit, it's evidence of this free gift of forgiveness that she's already received. You know, think of it this way. If in six months from now, I said to you, The windows are wet, for it is raining. You would intuitively interpret that word for as establishing the result or evidence of something, not establishing the cause. I'm not saying the windows are wet. The windows being wet is the cause of the rain. The windows being wet is evidence that it's raining outside. That's how Luke is using this word here. He's establishing that her her love is fruit and evidence this free salvation that she has received. And he continues by saying, he who is forgiven little, loves little. And by implication, Jesus also means to say that that he who is forgiven much, loves much. Our love for Christ stands in direct proportion to our recognition of our forgiveness. Now this woman and this Pharisee, as I mentioned, are represented in these debtors. And when Jesus compares the Pharisee to the man with the small debt, Jesus is not saying that the Pharisee has very, very few sins. Rather, 
The point he's trying to make is that the Pharisee doesn't recognize the greatness of his sin and misery. And notice the logic of this. Because he doesn't recognize the greatness of his sin and misery, he doesn't fully appreciate, doesn't fully see the need for the good news of the gospel, and thus he doesn't have much gratitude and love for Christ. It's like a domino effect. But this woman, she gets the greatness of her sin and misery. You don't have to convince her of her many sins. She knows that. And thus she is set up in a perfect place to receive the gospel as good news. And thus, in response to that gospel, she's filled, overflowing with gratitude and love to Christ. So Jesus here is teaching us the sufficiency of the gospel for our motivation in our Christian lives. The sufficiency of the gospel for our motivation in our Christian lives. However, in order for the gospel to motivate us, we need to know how bad the bad news really is. We need to know how deep the problem of the fallen human condition really is. Otherwise, we're not going to see the the gospel is good news. We're not going to see the solution that the gospel provides. So in order for the gospel to really serve as a motivation, we need to be reminded of how bad the bad news really is, of who we once were, dead, not sick, dead in our sins and trespasses. So we see here that basic paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude, the same paradigm that structures our own catechism. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why in our order of worship we go through this basic paradigm in order to catechize ourselves in this guilt, grace, gratitude logic. We hear the law, we're reminded of who we once were in Adam. Reminded of the bad news. It's it's in that context that we hear this gracious declaration of pardon. That God justifies the ungodly. Not by our merits, but by Christ's merits. And then we show forth a life of gratitude. And that's represented as we sing the doxology, give of our offerings, as we pray, as we confess our faith in doxology. So the gospel is sufficient motivation for our Christian lives. But if you look with me uh, back to our narrative Uh, Luke concludes this this passage as we see after Jesus gets done explaining this parable, the other guests at the table, they begin to question among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And we have to recognize that Jesus' claim to forgive sins is arguably the most controversial thing that he says or does in his earthly ministry. Because to forgive sins is either blasphemous or it's a claim to deity. It's one or the other. Now imagine if you saw someone sin. And this sin was not, it's not a great sin. It's just that someone was sinning and it was not against you. It was not against anyone uh, in particular. It would be quite strange if you went up to that person and said, I forgive you. It would make sense. It'd be like, I don't need your forgiveness. 
In a similar way, if, if Jesus is merely a human teacher, it makes absolutely zero sense why he would go to this woman and say, your sins are forgiven. Because this woman hasn't sinned against Jesus. However, it makes perfect sense if Jesus is true God. Because we know that every sin which is committed is ultimately a sin against God. And thus Jesus' claim to forgive sins in this passage is a claim to divinity. And so this narrative, it begins with Simon, this skeptical Pharisee, inviting Jesus over to try to trip him up. To to prove that he isn't the one who is to come, the Messiah. And this narrative ends with Jesus making the ultimate claim as he claims to forgive the sins of this woman. So brothers and sisters, beloved in the Lord, what is the chief motivation for the Christian life? Well, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the Reformation got it right. So let us never forget this basic paradigm of how bad the bad news truly is. How good the good news of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. And thus let us fill our sails with gratitude as we seek to serve and love our risen Savior. Let us